0: Hello and welcome to Uncommon Law, my podcast about true stories from my life experience of over 50 years as a lawyer and trial judge. This is a look at the law from the inside out, stuff they don't teach in law school. This is Judge Rudy Greco, retired justice of the New York State Supreme Court. My answering service called me early in the morning to say that one of my clients had called and it was urgent I should call him back. Well, the caller was a guy named Bruce, who was an artist. He's a sculptor, actually, and uh, he was a cool, calm, and collected guy. He was quite a nice man, and he's very much a guy with a good handle on his life and his profession and everything else he did. Uh, he, was, he, was, he had it all together. He was, he was quite a family man, and uh, I knew... He wasn't an alarmist, as I knew him pretty well. He had been uh, a bricklayer by trade, and then he became a, a contractor, and he worked on a job, a construction job, for an artist who saw uh, how good Bruce's work really was and how handy he was, and he said, had you ever considered uh, yourself uh, Uh, doing any artwork or anything like that. Well, one thing led to another, and Bruce ended up uh, being a sculptor. And uh, uh, he had a nice family. He was divorced in his late 40s, but he kept in touch with his wife. It was an amicable divorce, and they were on good terms, and he was very, very close with his son and his daughter. And he had a very, very good-going working life. It seems that... um, Bruce was um, employed by a world-famous museum and uh, he was the uh, head of uh, restoration and repair at the museum, the only man in the museum with license to touch any artwork in the museum. Uh, He also was a figurative sculptor and he did uh, various uh, realistic human forms of sculpture Dances, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He even did some uh, busts of uh, four Confederate generals uh, for the Smithsonian, I believe. And uh, he taught stone cutting as well. He was very, very accomplished and uh, and quite a good guy. So uh, when he called, I called him right back. He was he again. He was not an alarmist, and I knew it was important. And he told me what he told me, uh, and I said, come right over. I'll meet you right away, first thing in the morning. And uh, now uh, that that call was about 7 o'clock in the morning, and he got to my office uh, where I met him uh, probably 8.30 or 9 o'clock in the morning. And when he got there, he was uh, upset. And uh, I said, sit down, take it easy, and and tell me what happened. He said, you're not going to believe this. And he started to relate his tale. He said, the day before... He had gone to Washington, D.C. with his girlfriend. And they were driving his old pickup truck to deliver, I think it was the Smithsonian, I'm not so sure, a museum in Washington, four busts sculptured, bust of Confederate generals that he had been commissioned to do by that museum, and he was delivering uh, the work that they commissioned, and he drove it down there, and he drove back all in one day, and it was very, very late at night, and his, 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 his girlfriend lived up uh, near Columbia University up in West Harlem, and uh, he dropped her off, and he was on his way home, very tired, uh, about two, three o'clock in the morning and about to pull onto the parkway approaching uh, the Harlem River Drive or whatever it was. He was a major deacon. I don't know what he was getting to, the West Side Highway. And out of nowhere, a guy came away from his visibility, uh, out of his, his field of vision. And the next thing you know, the guy came running towards his truck. And he said, I had just stopped at a light. And I was pulling away from the light when the light turned green. He said the whole street was deserted. And this guy came from between parked cars. And the next thing I know, I hear a noise. And I hit a bump and a noise. And it's a crunching noise. And I realize this guy is under the wheels of my truck. And the crunching noise were his bones breaking, he says. And that was horrifying. He says, I teach, uh, I taught anatomy. And it was just a horrifying thing. I didn't even know what happened or where this guy came from. It was so sudden. He said, and just as sudden, immediately, instantaneously, there was an ambulance on the scene. He says, and I'm telling you, the whole area was deserted. This was, you know, February. It was ice cold outside. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. And an ambulance comes from nowhere, right there, like magic. He said, they go right to the guy, take the guy. One of the There were two guys in the ambulance, and one of them comes over to me and, and asks me, are you all right? And he says, he says you look like you're in the daze. He says, I don't know what happened. He says, I don't know how to say. He said, that's all right. Settle down. He said, we're going to take this guy to the hospital. I said, are you okay? He said, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. So I'm shook up, but I'm okay. He said, all right. And they took the guy. He said, we got to take him right away. And they took him away in the ambulance and left Bruce there all alone in the middle of West Harlem on an icy freezing February night. To his own devices, no cops, no crowds, no people, no one in sight. He doesn't know what to do. He shook up, so he went back to the truck. He got in the truck, and he drove home pretty much reflexively on on reflex. When he got home, he made himself a cup of coffee, and he started to reflect on what happened. And that's when he called my office, Next early in the morning, actually when when it was feasible, and he had all these questions in his own mind, like how did this thing happen? Where did this guy come from? He couldn't make it was surreal he He couldn't even make sense of it. Well, he left to come to my office, and before he got there, the last thing that happened before he left his house for my office was uh, he got a phone call from some detectives. They called him at home apparently that that I figured that was pretty good. M- Good news because apparently um, the ambulance drivers had reported the accident and made a report and they had witnessed it, uh, I guess, I don't know. Uh, and um, they probably ran down Bruce's license plate and then ran down his residential address and then his phone number and they contacted him. And he told the cops and they he said they were, they were very nice on the phone. He said they weren't... Uh, Nasty or intimidating or anything else, which led me to believe that maybe the report was favorable, uh, and and showed that this was a real accident. You never know. Clients tell you stuff, but you you never know what's going on, and so you start digging at the truth. Well, Bruce told him, "I'm on my way to see my lawyer," and they asked for my name. He gave him the name, and they asked for my phone number, and he gave him the phone number. And he came and he met me early in the morning. First thing in the morning it was about 8.30, 9 o'clock in my morning. And I settled him down. And I said, Bruce, you know, settle down. And, and that goes a long way, you know. And I started asking him questions. And these were objective questions. And that helped him to clear up his own mind as, as to what had happened. And uh, a lot of questions arose. Like he said, he said I was in first gear. I just came from the light. He says, the truck is old. It's ancient. It's a standard shift too. He said, I'm in uh, first gear. He says, no more than five miles an hour tops to get to second gear. He says, I just was shifting to second gear. And this guy came out of, I don't know where he came from. How didn't I see him? And how didn't he stop? He looked like he knew what he was doing. He says, and and how could he not stop or might not stop in time? You know, and, 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 before I ran the guy over, he says, I don't know what to think. He said, And what was this guy doing? I have no idea. Well, I called the detectives and I found them to be very polite and very helpful. They were actually sympathetic, which again confirmed my belief that apparently uh, the ambulance drivers had reported this stuff and maybe it was favorable uh, in, in the facts that they had reported. Uh, because they weren't intimidating at all, and um, they in fact told me, "I said I'll come in, I'll surrender him." You know, where can we, where can we meet? Where do you want us to come? What precinct? And uh, the detective said, "No, no." I said, "Tell you what, you can bring him to his local precinct." Uh, I said, "We're going to call up," and they mentioned where where his local precinct was. I knew exactly where it was, and they were being very accommodating. I said, "You you bring him over there." And they'll handle it from there. We'll call them up and fill them in and send them, uh, uh, facts copies of whatever the, the, the paperwork is. And that's not a problem. So I thought that was very helpful and uh, that augured well. I said, well, maybe this is, you know, a real accident and it's, it's not going to be so bad. So we surrendered him at the uh, local precinct and they were very kind and um, they issued him. They didn't arrest him. He was charged with vehicular homicide because you have to. The guy died, and uh, he was driving uh, his vehicle when it happened. And they gave him a desk appearance ticket, or what we call a DAT, which is basically a summons to go to court at a future date, which is the nicest possible way you can handle it. It's usually for minor offenses, you know, uh, spitting on the sidewalk or littering. You get a desk appearance ticket. And here it was, a homicide, and they gave him a desk appearance ticket. And I thought that uh, that was pretty good. And the cops told me, and they went out of their way to say something which I already knew. They said, listen, you know, the reports are available if you subpoena them, Counselor, and uh, the ambulance reports. And uh, I said, okay, the accident report. I said, sure. And I knew that that was going to be favorable. But I also knew that the reports, if these were routine reports, they're going to be very terse. Because uh, all civil service people like the, the police and the EMTs and the ambulance, uh, the emergency medical technicians and firemen or anybody else building department, when civil servants write reports, they're very terse uh, and they're very carefully written and they don't tell you the whole story because the uh, mantra of all of these people is CYA is cover your ass and, and they don't want to write anything in there that gets themselves in trouble. So they're very terse, and usually there's a lot more to the story than just what appears in the language of the reports, whether it's an emergency room report, a police arrest report, or anything else. So I knew that I would have to get this stuff, and I knew how to subpoena it, and I also hired a private investigator, an ex-New York detective who's a friend of mine who worked as a private investigator, and uh, the reason I did that uh, was to get another point of view on the case, but also to be a witness with me because we were tracking down the ambulance drivers and when we confronted the ambulance drivers and the and the assistant the passenger in the ambulance I wanted somebody else there because I didn't want to be in the position where I was alone and I might have to I was the only one who could testify as to what these guys said or witness what they said A lawyer can't wear two hats. You can't represent a client and then be a witness for that client. That's that's a no-no, and you get yourself in big, big trouble for even trying to do that. If any judge would let you do it, he wouldn't let you do it. But having the detective there meant I had somebody else, a third party, who could then testify. I could call as a witness if I I had to go to trial or I had to do that or have a hearing. So we went up, and it turns out this ambulance was a city ambulance from Harlem Hospital, and we found out they were on street patrol. And the ambulance driver said, I was right behind that pickup truck, stopped at the light. I, we were on street patrol. We just happened to be there at 3 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock in the morning, whatever it was. And he said, that's when this thing happened. And I said, well, what did you see? He said, I didn't see much because I was looking at that. I was right behind the back. I was within a couple of feet of the back of the truck. He said, and I'm driving. He said, but my assistant, my partner on the run, he saw everything. I said, good, can we get him? He says, yeah, you could get him, but he's retired. He just retired and he's in Florida now. I said, okay, fine. So we tracked down the other guy. It took us a while, but we tracked him down in his retirement in Florida and spoke to him at length. And he said he saw the whole thing. And what he said was that this guy, came out from nowhere between parked cars. He says, and it was like the guy wanted to die because what he did, he says, and I saw this, I was horrified, he dove under the wheels of that truck. He said, not to mention the fact that it's about seven degrees that night. He says, the guy was shirtless, shoeless, and sockless, wearing a pair of chinos. He said, and he dove under the wheels of that truck. And he says, and we took him right away he said, w- and your guy was dazed. he says he never had a chance. he couldn't avoid that. This guy was determined to to t- to throw himself under the wheels of the truck and he came out between parked cars out of nowhere. He says, nobody had a chance. I was shocked He said, and we took the guy to the hospital and he died on the way to the hospital. He died actually in the emergency room when we first got there or we in transit. He said he was still alive when we got him, but he died by the time we got to the hospital all right, at the hospital. Well, I said, would you give me an affidavit with all of those facts. He said, yeah. He says, oh, we did. We obtained an affidavit and it confirmed everything that Bruce had said and that affidavit was the basis for the dismissal of the criminal case. Now, the New York City courts are very, very crowded, but they're very, very good at processing uh, these sorts of things because they know these things happen, and and they don't get carried away uh, simply because a guy died. That's serious business. That I'm not uh, making light of it, and it's not light, and uh, it's very, very serious business, and it's not an automatic thing, but um, the judges were very helpful, and everybody could read uh, all the different reports and and everything else, and um, we got the case dismissed. But that wasn't the... uh, End of Bruce's problems. Three weeks later, he got served with a civil summons and complaint alleging negligence and conscious uh, personal injury and wrongful death and personal injury involving conscious pain and suffering. Well, uh, those are all legal terms, but there's a big, big difference in, uh, uh, in effect of those words. Uh, a simple wrongful death case means somebody was killed instantaneously, and when that happens, which happens, something falls from a building and falls on a poor guy or something, a building collapses, and the guy never knew what hit him or a train uh, he falls trips on the subway, never knows what hit him, and dies instantaneous in the case of an instantaneous death, the wrongful death, you can be sued for wrongful death, but the measure of damages basic economic loss they say what is the dead person's occupation, what is their earning capacity, how many more years do they have to live uh, on the actuarial tables that the insurance companies maintain, and let's say a guy has 10 more years and he's a rocket scientist or he's a movie star, Uh, they figure out what their salary is and uh, they multiply it by 10. He's got 10 more earning years and this is going to be the basic economic loss, and that's it. But when you get sued for... Uh, It's limited. When you get sued for pain and suffering, conscious pain and suffering, that goes to a jury. And as good as the lawyer is at making out the case and how long that person lived and suffered consciously in pain and and knowing uh, they were hurt, well, the sky's the limit. Now you're talking millions or tens of millions of dollars in some cases, uh, depending on, on how serious the injuries are. People are permanently injured for the rest of their lives, and they've got 30 or 40 years left. Uh, who knows? And now this man was a young man, so it a cause of concern. And the thing about this case was it was one of the guy, the lawyer, who, who s- had the summons and conser- uh, complaint drawn up and served on us, on Bruce rather, was one of the leading personal injury lawyers in in New York City. Well, personal injury is big business in New York City and everywhere else, but especially in New York City. And there's a lot of ambulance chasing going on. A lot of these guys, even some of these big-time, highly respected, quote-unquote, respected names, uh, maintain networks of cops, firemen, nurses, EMTs, uh, and what have you, uh, tow truck drivers, uh, to get clients, and they, they get the clients right away, and they bring a lawsuit before they even investigate the facts. And um, I think that's what happened in this case. This guy knew it was uh, a, a death, and it was a young person, and he brought this lawsuit right away. Uh, so uh, I got the affidavits, and uh, now I need to uh, to get the emergency room records, from Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, where the, uh, which was the local hospital right near uh, nearest the accident itself. And I subpoenaed those records. Actually, I went up there to get them when I subpoenaed them. And I found out that everybody in the emergency room knew the decedent. They knew the, the victim of this case. He had a long, long history, unfortunate history of drug abuse and psychiatric problems. A psychiatric illness he was he was really mentally ill and he, he was also a drug abuser and he had been in and out of that emergency room everybody knew him by name uh, dozens of times and apparently everybody knew this except his own family and the lawyer that brought the case because the, the guy really you know had no case uh, from from his own personal background uh, uh, standpoint well I got those records and The criminal court records and all the reports, and I sent them to that lawyer, and the case was quietly but promptly dropped. Uh, There was no case. They knew that. When we had that guy's record, uh, they understood that this guy was mentally ill and he dove under the wheels, etc., etc. There was no negligence here. The poor guy was an unfortunate uh, mental health uh, sufferer. And that's what happened. Bruce went on after that to a continued uh, very successful career, and he did a lot of uh, good work. Uh, He helped uh, remodel or reconstitute the Statue of Liberty. Uh, He did the uh, mold for the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington um, with the three soldiers, a very famous one. And um, he also did... uh, one-foot-to-one-inch enlargements for famous sculptors like Willem de Kooning and Louise Nevelson. He had a very, very good career, and uh, he moved to the West Coast when this was over. He shut down his studio here and moved in with his sister up in uh, the northwest part of the country, and he led a good and and productive life. And um, this case uh, is is, uh, reminiscent of the the saying in the arts, you know, uh, in sculpture. Um, They'll tell you that uh, inside every block of marble, is a masterpiece. You just have to keep chipping away until you uh, get rid of all the waste material and get down to uh, uh, the truth of what uh, of what you're looking for. Well, in, in criminal cases, uh, that's very similar uh, circumstance. Uh, you have all of this massive stuff going on and you have to chip away and, and strip away all the different... Uh, waste and all of the conjecture and everything else and get down to the facts until you find uh, the real truth which fortunately we found in this case thanks for listening come back next week for another episode of Uncommon Law, Lessons They Don't Teach in Law School, I'm Judge Rudy Greco, court is adjourned